Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to learn the faith together and to be entertained by the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Archbishop Sheen taught the faith for many years and wrote uh, many beautiful books on the catechism and, uh, again, how to uh, learn how to love Jesus. And, uh, again, one of the best descriptions I ever heard of what a priest is, is a priest is someone who brings Jesus to the people and in turn brings the people to Jesus. And I think uh, that describes uh, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen very well. He helps bring many of us to Jesus. And so he uh, put together a beautiful catechism series uh, in the year 1965, and he recorded that catechism series on vinyl and um, again uh, sent it out all over the world and um, many people are still enjoying that catechism series through digital downloads and uh, again I think almost the days of LP uh, long play records uh, seem to be going by the wayside everything is uh, an mp3 or a digital download but still uh, again we need to learn the faith and so we'll share one of the catechism lessons with you today and it will be on the topic of Christ in the Creed and so um, Again, that'll be in the second part of our program today. But we'll start off with uh, a more a lighter rendition uh, from Fulton Sheen's, uh, cat, um, I want to say, television series, uh, Life is Worth Living. Uh, today's um, topic will be how to be unpopular. <laughs> now, I have to laugh because uh, I think sometimes when we share the faith uh, in uh, the real world, uh, we become unpopular. Uh, but I think Fulton Sheen, of course, will uh, give us a few uh, helpful temp tips today uh, as we listen to his uh, words of wisdom from the 1950s. And so, without further ado, I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen from his television series, Life is Worth Living, on the topic of how to be unpopular. Please enjoy. Friends. I wish to announce that we will have our angel with us again all this season. It seems as if he was grounded for low flying. He was buzzing Hades. <laughs> as we told you last week, our subject this week will be how to be unpopular. There are so many books written on how to be popular. I thought perhaps you'd like to find out how you might be unpopular. I understand that Malenkov was a bit concerned about it. And he sent out a number of investigators through Russia. And coming back to him, they said, we discovered that 98% of the people are for you. 
and 2% of the people are against you. But we bump in only to the 2%. <laughs> I heard of a woman who was using deodorants for two years before she discovered she was just naturally unpopular. been many definitions given of an unpopular person. One is, an unpopular person is one who, uh, when he is asked, how are you, tells you. <laughs> Something very difficult to learn is that how are you is a greeting, not a clinical question. <laughs> well, the root of all unpopularity is selfishness. And we will try to illustrate that with one of our infamous drawings. You say, that's good. That is good, isn't it? That looks like an egg. That surprised me, little self. Unpopularity is due to the fact that one emphasizes too much what might be called the shell of the egg or the ego. The ego and I. <laughs> Every unpopular person is an I specialist. An ego in Latin means I. On the inside of the egg is the self, which is the real personality. The outside is the superficial self. The ego is what we think we are. The self is the way we really are. The ego is the way we would like to appear before others. And the self is our essence. Sometimes this shell is so very, very thick that it prevents the development of personality. There are tremendous potentialities in every human being in the world. But if this fortress of self is solid, it is impossible for any outside influences to come in. For example, good human influences and even actual graces from God himself. This ego has been called very often a superiority complex a rather inferiority complex. In the true sense of the word, there isn't any such thing as an inferiority complex. A person with an inferiority complex always feels superior. And I, I just happen to think of it now. Do you know why a modern bad boy is like a bad egg like this one? Neither of them ever get beaten. the manifestation of the ego is that an egotist always likes to keep other people waiting. It's a habit of his. Because he emphasizes his own importance simply because he keeps them dangling. Did you ever hear the story of the... I think it appeared in Reader's Digest a year or two ago about a couple that went out to a nightclub and it seems as if Lady asked 
to be excused, and she was gone well over an hour. And the gentleman called a lady from an adjoining table, and he sent a note to his lady companion, and the note read, at least you could have written. This is the general foundation for unpopularity, the overemphasis on the ego. Now, there are two surefire ways of being unpopular. One is boasting. And the other is ridicule. Oh, incidentally, in a telecast like this, we aren't to think of other people. We're really to think of ourselves. This will remind us always of other people. First of all, boasting. Uh, there are various things of which a person can boast. can boast, for example, of, uh, well, of his family tree. Forgetful that many a family tree started with grafting. But the two things of which a person is most wont to boast are, first of all, what he knows, and secondly, what he has. First of all, what he knows. Ever noticed how many young people boast of the college to which they went? They want the college to reflect on their knowledge, rather than their, their knowledge to reflect on the college. <laughs> Must be remembered that there are some colleges that are very hard to get into, but they're very easy to get out of. <laughs> then there is the person who is so conceited that you cannot tell him anything. He's omniscient. If a box is filled with salt, it cannot be filled with pepper. If a personality is filled with its own importance, and the assurance that it knows all there is to be known, and that the only things to be known are what can be seen and touched and scientifically examined. Such a person is incapable of being taught anything even by God himself. And therefore they close out that great higher knowledge, which comes from faith and revelation. Why is it that people vote? Notice that a man who has power, real talent, genius, intelligence, never boasts of these things. Have you ever heard of a real athlete who boasted of his exploits? The heroes of our battlefields are reluctant to talk about their exploits and the way they distinguish themselves in the heat of battle. We cannot get our missionaries who spend two and three years in a communist prison in China to talk about their fortitude. Now they stood up for their faith amidst torture. There's no need of boasting of it. They just simply take it for granted. Did you ever hear of a saint boast of his holiness? But when a man is not very holy, then he has to take on the air of holiness. He has to cultivate a certain tone of voice. 
and a certain way of addressing you which will assure you that he is really a holy and a saintly man. It has not been unknown that men changed their voices when they got to be bishops. But when a person has not real talent or real power, then he has to make up for his own insufficiency by boasting. And we said, first of all, he boasts of what he knows. And these are always very difficult people to meet up with. He's sometimes very fond of arguing. I know one man who was so fond of arguing because he's convinced of how much he knows that he'll never need anything with the degrees with him. Apropos of those who pride themselves that they know so very much, there was a story going around about six or seven years ago which ought to be revived, which illustrates this particular point. It seems that this man stopped a friend of his on the street. There was a dead horse in the gutter, and he said, will you help me drag this dead horse down the street? So he dragged it down the street. Now he said, help me up, drag it up on the porch. Dragged it up on the porch, first floor, second floor, third floor. Now he says, help me pull it in the bathroom. Did. Now let's put it in the tub. So finally they put the dead horse in the tub. And his friend said, do you mind if I ask why you do all of this? Yes, he said, I'll tell you why. He said, I have a roommate. I tell him I read a book. He says, I read it. I tell him I met someone. I met him. I tell him some event that I just heard about or read in the newspaper. He says, I know it. Well, he says, tonight when he comes home, he's going in the bathroom. He's going to come out and tell me there's a dead horse in the tub. I'll say, I know it. Another form of unpopularity is to boast about your wealth and that you are a self-made man. Now, here we're not speaking of self-made men or a poor man who became rich, but we're speaking of self-made men who always boast of that particular fact. Have you ever noticed how many of them, once they get a drink in them, then they have to tell you that I started as a poor boy. I didn't have a cent. The only time they ever began to appreciate poverty is when they began to be rich. <laughs> and these self-made men very often go to prove the terrible tragedies of unskilled labor. Did you ever know a self-made man yet on whom his wife did not have to make many alterations? <laughs> Tolstoy tells a beautiful story of, of these people who boast how much money they made and how much power they have. He said that one day the, the prince offered a poor man all the land that he could encompass between sunrise and sunset 
So we started out running in the morning, and he was to complete the square by evening, sunset. He saw at noon, oh, he was running as fast as he could, that he would have to hurry to complete his circle. And he ran faster and faster, and just about five minutes before he closed the circle, he dropped dead, and Tolstoy ended his story by saying, and he got all the land he ever needed, six feet of it. What some of these people forget, we become very wealthy and boast about it, is that the good Lord gave it to them. They dug a hole in the ground, oil spurted up in their face. They found gold. The good Lord put the oil there. But the good Lord is never thanked. I suppose that's one of the reasons they're so unpopular, is because they forget that they have to thank for these gifts. That's one of the reasons I always feel sorry for the atheist. Never has anyone to thank. Then there's another way to be unpopular, and that is ridicule. Why do people ridicule? They ridicule for two reasons. Thomas Jefferson gave the first reason. He said, a man ridicules when he has no reason for his position. And how true that is. That explains the attitude of the Soviets and the United Nations and their constant attacks upon the Western world. As they walk around this country of ours, they see freedom, economic prosperity, genuine happiness of mind and heart. And they realize they do not have these things at home. And at the bar of reason, which the UN is supposed to be, they cannot argue the insult. And what is true of the Soviets ridiculing America is true of the man who ridicules religion and virtue and others. He has to have vice in his soul in order to ridicule. cannot argue out his position. Now, have you ever noticed that people who cannot argue with you on a certain position always want to bet you? <laughs> and with that, there comes, of course, the cynic. Remember Oscar Wilde's definition of the cynic? man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. A cynic is a man who cheats at solitaire and then thinks everyone else in the world is a cheat. <laughs> They're sarcastic about everything they hear, and sarcasm is certainly the chasm that divides friends. I heard of two Americans in Switzerland. This really and truly happened. One of them was a friend of mine. And this friend came up and he said, you know, there isn't anything beautiful in Europe. The cathedrals are old. He said, art galleries have nothing beautiful in them. Their religious paintings, for the most part, have none of the squares and circles that we have in our great modern art. What is there that's beautiful in all Europe? And this friend of mine said, well, look at the Alps. And he said, well, take away the scenery from Switzerland and what have you got left?
And then, of course, there is the accuser. You go out without your rubbers. You catch a cold, he reminds you that you went out without your rubbers. You broke your leg, you should have stayed away from banana peels. Everything you do is wrong. And then, of course, there is the knife in the back man. Shakes hands with you all the way up to the elbows. <laughs> Hasn't talked to you in three or four months. Wants something. Pretend he's all right. He always begins the conversation with, Hi, Joe, boy, old pal. <laughs> Oh, this is too big a subject. The most important thing, of course, is to find out how to be popular. And the very easy rule to give is this. Never seek to be popular. Popularity is like happiness. Pleasure. You do not go out to find pleasure directly. You do something else and pleasure results from it. You do good, popularity comes. Popularity ought to be like bloom on a cheek. I don't know why I'm pointing to my own, because I haven't any bloom in mine. <laughs> but you. A bloom is the byproduct of health. But rouge, that's artificially stimulated. And that's what the wrong kind of popularity is. As Walter Winchell once said of that kind of popularity, he said, uh, always be good to people on the way up, because you're going to meet them on the way down. And then another simple rule for being popular is to consider every other person better than we are. Really better. How can that be? How are they better than we are? Well, first of all, we can always know absolutely the worst that is in ourselves. But we can only suspect the worst that is in others. Since, therefore, we are sure of the worst that is in us and can only suspect what is worse than others, then they may be superior. And furthermore, all we can judge is the outside. They may wear poor clothes. They may smell of garlic. They may not speak English well. They may be on the inside. They love God far more than we do. And then they may not be very lovable on the outside, Good Lord loves them. Did you ever hear the story about Abraham? It seems that a visitor came to his tent one night, and he took in the visitor. He served him his best wine. He gave him his cot. He waited on him hand and foot. And the visitor complained constantly. And finally, Abraham said to the visitor, Get out! And the good Lord spoke to Abraham, and he says, Listen, Abraham. I've been putting up with that man for 50 years. Can't you put up with him for three days? <laughs> there is only one way in the world to find people lovable, and that is to put some of our own love into them. That's the way the good Lord does with us. There isn't anything lovable about any of us. Why should the infinite, sovereign God love any of us? Just sit down and think that out for a second. There isn't any reason in the world why you should love me. Or you. Why then does he love us? Will he put some of his love into us? 
and therefore he finds us lovable. Then when we begin to put our love into other people, we find them lovable. We do not seek to be popular. We seek to serve them. Because we see even the divine image in them. I was in prison and you visited me. Therefore, the secret of all popularity is that which was given by John the Baptist when he saw the sovereign Lord incarnate approaching him. I must decrease. He must increase. Hello, my good friends. You're listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, that reflection titled How to Be Unpopular was, um, uh, you know, very, uh, it's very near and dear to my heart because I think being in social media, I'm trying to, uh, you know, get likes and subscribe and, you know, uh, spread the good news. Um, and so I think it's always a, how do we become popular uh, and how do I you know, become un unpopular, right? Now, I, I do this nervous laugh because sometimes when you're on radio, you're thinking, I better be kind. I, I don't want to get, uh, offend too many people. And, um, you know, you're careful on radio. Uh, but still, I think with Fulton Sheen, uh, he was careful. But uh, what did they say? He uh, delivered the message with clarity and charity. And so he's saying to us, you know, do good unto others. Um, again, be patient with others. Uh, don't be a phony. Be authentic. And, you know, it's um, consider people better than yourself. Uh, become humble. Uh, again, beautiful lessons. Um, you know, easy to listen to, but sometimes hard to put into practice. But uh, let us pray to our Blessed Mother for a special grace that we'll be able to practice the faith and practice charity. And uh, we may become unpopular, uh, but we're becoming popular with our Lord and our Lady. So let us continue to strive to get to heaven. And uh, we know we need good resources. And uh, again, I try to uh, help everyone where I can with uh, Fulton Sheen's uh, videos and audio recordings and books. And our good friends at Sophia Institute Press. A uh, very uh, great publisher of fine Catholic materials. Uh, they're offering us a 25% discount on books that we purchase through Sophia Institute Press. And so there is a website. It's sophiainstitute.com. And uh, there you'll find, of course, many books uh, penned by Fulton J. Sheen that I've been blessed to edit those books. And one of the books is Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. And... Um, we all need a good book on the sacraments, and uh, Fulton Sheen wrote about not only the sacraments, but about marriage and uh, about life and uh, so much more. And so uh, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments contains two books, the 1962 Book of Sacraments, where he explains the seven sacraments, and also the book Three to Get Married, a very popular book that he penned in 1951. So uh, again, nice to have for the family a book on the sacraments and marriage, and it's available through Sophia Institute Press. And again, there's a 25% discount when you use the promo code SHEEN25 at checkout. So SHEEN25. And again, there's uh, Cardinal Sarah, Cardinal Mueller, and uh, many, many great authors 
Uh, again, the books at sophiainstitute.com. And I will mention they have a beautiful selection of children's books too. So uh, there is something for everyone. So again, uh, sophiainstitute.com and use the promo code SHEEN25 uh, at checkout to receive your 25% discount for our listeners here at home. And so again, my thanks to sophiainstitute.com for their generosity in extending this discount to us. All right, we will now have our catechism lesson from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And uh, today's lesson is titled Christ in the Creed. And so may I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he teaches us the faith. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. These next few lessons will be treating the creed. It is to be noted that the creed almost summarizes a life, how quickly it passes over the public life of our Lord. He was born, he suffered, he was buried, he rose, and then he sat at the right hand of the Father in glory. This is destined to be the summary of every human life. Note, too, how it was divided, the life of our Lord. Thirty years obeying, three years teaching, three hours redeeming. First we begin with his birth. Caesar Augustus, the master bookkeeper of the world, was seated at his desk at the Tiber in Rome. And before him was a map. It was labeled Orbis Terrarum Imperium Romanum. Because he was master of the world, he was going to take a census of the world, for all the civilized nations of the world were subject to Rome. There was only one capital in the world, that was Rome, and there was only one official language, Latin, and there was one ruler. Caesar. So to every outpost, to every satrap, to every governor, the order went out. Every Roman must be enrolled in his own city. On the fringe of the empire, in the little village of Nazareth, soldiers tacked up on the wall the order for all citizens to register in the town's of their family origins. Joseph, a carpenter, a very obscure descendant of the great King David, was obliged by that very fact to register in Bethlehem, which was the city of David. And in accordance with the edict, Mary and Joseph set out from the village of Nazareth for the village of Bethlehem, which lies about five miles on the other side of Jerusalem, that is to say, after they had made the journey from Nazareth. Five hundred years earlier, it had been prophesied by the great prophet Micaeus that our blessed Lord would be born in the city of Bethlehem. He dies in the great city of Jerusalem, that the ignominy of his crucifixion may be known to all, but the glory of his birth is hidden in the least of the cities. Mary is now with child, waiting birth. 
and Joseph is full of expectancy as he enters the city of his own family. He searched for a place where he to whom heaven and earth belonged might be born. Could it be that the Creator would not find room in his own creation? Certainly, thought Joseph, there would be room in the village inn. There was room for the rich, there was room for those who were clothed in soft garments, there was room for everyone who had a tip to give to the innkeeper. But when finally the scrolls of history are completed down to the last words of time, the saddest lines of all will be, there was no room in the inn. No room in the inn, but there was room in a stable. The inn is the gathering place of public opinion, the focal point of the world's moods, the rendezvous of the worldly, the rallying place of the popular and the successful. But there's no room in the place where the world gathers. The stable. Ah, that is a place for outcasts, the ignored and the forgotten. The world might have expected the Son of God to be born in an inn. A stable would certainly be the last place in the world where one would look for him. The lesson is Divinity is always where you least expect to find it. So the Son of God made man is invited to enter into his own world through a back door. Exiled from the earth, he's born under the earth. But the stable was a cave. He was the first caveman of recorded history. And there he shook the earth to its very foundations. And because he's born in a cave, all who wish to see him must bend, must stoop. And the stoop is the mark of humility. The proud refuse to stoop. Therefore they miss divinity. Those, however, who are willing to bend their egos and go into that cave find that they are not in a cave at all. That they are in a universe where sits a babe on his mother's lap. The babe who made the world. Shepherds and wise men came to visit him. Shepherds they who know, they know nothing. Wise men, they who know, they do not know everything. Never the man with one book. Never the man who thinks that he knows. Time passes, and then there comes the flight into Egypt, after which our blessed Lord is brought back by his mother and foster father to Nazareth was to be his hometown. 
where he was to spend his time until he began his public life. Seemed like a very long preparation. One wonders why it was so long. Practically 30 years for three years' ministry. One can only guess. This is our guess. The reason might very well be that he waited until the human nature which he had assumed had grown in age to a full perfection so that he might offer a perfect sacrifice to his heavenly father. Does not the farmer wait until the wheat is ripe before cutting it and subjecting it to the mill? So he would wait until his human nature had reached its most perfect proportions and its peak of loveliness before surrendering it to the hammer of the crucifiers and the sickle of those who would cut down the living bread of heaven. The newborn lamb was never offered in sacrifice by the Jews, nor is the first blush of the rose cut to pay tribute to a friend. Each thing has its hour of perfection. Since he was the lamb that could set the hour for his own sacrifice, since he was the rose that could choose the moment of its own cutting, he waited patiently, humbly, obediently, while he grew in age and grace and wisdom before God and man. Then he would say, this is your hour. Thus the choicest wheat and the reddest wine would become the worthiest elements of sacrifice. That perhaps is why he waited. We've already said something about his temptation, namely the reversal of the temptation Adam and Eve. Satan, you will recall, tried three short cuts. He solicited our blessed Lord to forego the cross, to give people bread, to work some kind of wonders. Oh, to do anything except treat with human guilt and sin. Then after the temptation, our Lord begins his public life, he goes beyond the Jordan. There John the Baptist is preaching. It was about the season of the Passover. Now the Passover, you will recall, takes its name from the fact that uh, when the Jews were in bondage in Egypt, in order to release the Jews, God punished the Egyptians. They were to lose their firstborn. But in order that the destroying angel would not touch the firstborn of the Jews, the Jews were asked to sacrifice a lamb and to sprinkle the blood of the lamb above the doorpost, not on the earth where it could be trampled upon. The destroying angel, seeing that blood as a promise and sign of redemption from slavery, would pass over that house. 
The sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb became known as the Passover. The Jews continued to offer the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb at the season of Passover. And in the course of centuries, hundreds of thousands of lambs must have been sacrificed. Remember that even before Moses, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he loaded his son Isaac with wood and told him to carry the wood, which was preparatory and necessary for the sacrifice, up the mountain. It was the symbol of God the Father offering his son as Isaac was the only son of Abraham. So our Lord, the son of the heavenly father. When finally Abraham and Isaac got to the top of the mountain, Isaac asked, where is the lamb? What are we going to sacrifice? God provided a substitute for Isaac. That too typified the fact that our blessed Lord would in some way substitute himself for our sins. But the point is that Isaac asked, Where is the lamb? Abraham said, My son, God will see to it that there is a lamb to be sacrificed. Deus providebit, God will provide a lamb. With this memory of the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, with a memory of the Passover season, and all of the lambs that had been sacrificed, the Jews were now at this Passover season going up to Jerusalem. Every family was to have its own Paschal lamb. One can therefore imagine the banks of the Jordan almost being white with the fleece of the lambs that were being brought up to the city in order to be sacrificed. The Jews understood the meaning. It was a recall and a memory of how they were rescued from political slavery. And they were also told by the prophets that it was to be a symbol of being rescued from spiritual slavery. In fact, their prophet Isaiah had told them that when the true Lamb of God would come, that he would be a man. Isaiah had written, and God laid on his shoulders our guilt, the guilt of us all. A victim? Yes, he himself bows to the stroke. No words come from him. Now as John the Baptist was preaching, he sees all of these lambs before him, but he also sees our blessed Lord in the crowd. And looking over all of these lambs that were only types and symbols of the lamb that was to come, the lamb that God would provide, the lamb who would take away the guilt of us all, John the Baptist let his voice Ring out! And pointing to our blessed Lord, he said, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takest away the sins of the world. All through the centuries those words of and that inquiry of Isaac had been repeated. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? John the Baptist gives the answer. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb was the sacrifice. And Christ would be the sacrifice. Notice John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. He was not the people's lamb, nor the lamb of the Jews, nor the lamb of any human owner, but the lamb of God. And when the time came for that lamb to be sacrificed, he would not be a victim of those who were stronger than himself, but rather he would be fulfilling his own willing duty of love for sinners. It was not man who offered this sacrifice, although it was man who slew the victim. It would be God himself. Thus at the very beginning of the public life of our Lord, we have a foretelling of the sacrifice. The cross is no afterthought in the life of our Lord. John the Evangelist in the Apocalypse speaks of the Lamb slain in sacrifice ever since the world was made, or even before the world was made. This means that the Lamb was slain, as it were, by divine decree from all eternity, though the temporal fulfillment of that sacrifice would only be on the hill of Calvary. If we had time to go into every single detail of the life of our blessed Lord, we would see how the cross was dominant in everything that he said and did. And yet the cross is not final. Our Lord never once spoke of the cross without speaking also of the resurrection. Taking one other incident, in a very long conversation our blessed Lord had one night with Nicodemus, our Lord told him that he did not know as much about the Mosaic law as he thought. Then telling Nicodemus that he was not only the son of man, but the son of God. He said, what will you make of it if you see the son of man ascending to the place where he was before? In other words, in heaven came down from heaven to this world. Our blessed Lord then used a figure that was very well known to Nicodemus and to the Jews. What our Lord said that night to Nicodemus was this, and this son of man must be lifted up in the wilderness so that those who believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life as the serpent was lifted up by Moses. What did our Lord mean by that, the serpent lifted up by Moses? If you go back to the book of Numbers, you will see there that when the people rebelled against God, 
in the desert. They were punished with a plague of fiery serpents. Many of them lost their lives. Moses was then told by God to make a brazen serpent. That is to say, a serpent of brass. And set it up in the crotch of a tree. Then God told Moses that everyone who would look at that serpent of brass in the crotch of that tree would be healed of the bite of the poisonous serpent. Now certainly there was nothing in a poisonous serpent, or rather in a serpent of brass, that could cure any of those who were suffering from the bite of a serpent. No intrinsic relationship between the two. And yet everyone who looked upon it was healed, and those who refused to look upon that serpent of brass were not healed. Now after hundreds of years have passed, our blessed Lord comes to this earth, goes back to that symbol, and gives its real meaning. Our Lord now said, He is the serpent of brass. And just as Moses lifted up that serpent of brass on a tree, so he, our blessed Lord, will be lifted up on the tree of the cross. And all who look upon him will be saved. The connection is this. That brass serpent in the desert looked exactly like the fiery serpents that had stung the Jews. But it did not have venom inside of it. It looked as if it were poisonous, but it was not poisonous. Our blessed Lord now implied that he too would be lifted up on a tree he would look as if he were a sinner. He would look as if he were full of the venom of guilt. Would not judges condemn him? And if he were condemned, would it not seem as if he were a sinner himself? And yet, he would be without sin. And all who would look upon him would be healed. Was the symbol to which our Lord met. Once more our Lord was saying that he was not just a teacher but a redeemer. He was coming to redeem man in the likeness of human flesh. Teachers change men by their lives. Our blessed Lord would change men by his death. And that poison of hate and sensuality and envy which is in the hearts of men could not be healed simply by wild exhortations of social reform. The wages of sin is death, and therefore it was to be by death that sin would be atoned for. As in the ancient sacrifices, the fire symbolically burned up the imputed sin along with the victim, so on the cross the world's sin would be put away in Christ's suffering, for he would be upright as a priest, and prostrate as a victim. 
there's anything that every good teacher wants, it is a long life which will make his teaching known. Death is always a great tragedy to a teacher. When Socrates was given the hemlock juice, his message was cut off once and for all. Death was a stumbling block to Buddha, stood in the way of all of the teachings of the Eastern mystics. But here our blessed Lord was always proclaiming as death which he takes upon himself the sins of the world, which he would appear himself as if he were a sinner. Our blessed Lord now, this night that he talks with Nicodemus, proclaimed himself the light of the world. The most astounding part of it was that he said no one would understand his teaching until after his death and resurrection. No other teacher in the world ever said that it would take a violent death to clarify his teaching. Here was a teacher who made his teaching so secondary that he could say that the only way that he would ever draw men to himself would be not by his doctrine, not by what he said, but by his crucifixion. As our blessed Lord put it, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will recognize that it is myself you look for. He did not say that it would even be by his teaching that they would understand. It would rather be by his personality that they would grasp the meaning of his coming. Only then would they know, after they had put him to death, that he spoke the truth. His death then, instead of being the last of a series of failures, would be a glorious success in the climax of his mission on earth. And that's the great difference in the statues of the pictures of Buddha and Christ, as we mentioned. Buddha's always seated, eyes closed, hands folded across his fat, sleek body, intently looking inwards. Christ is not seated on this earth. He's lifted up, he's enthroned. His person and his death are the heart and soul of his teaching. The cross and all that it implies is the very center of his life. Now it remains only to tell you about his cross, his death, and his burial. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith. I want to thank you for joining me this week to listen to a little bit of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Archbishop Sheen will continue his catechism series with us next week and will continue to be entertained by his humor from his Life is Worth Living television show. And if you'd like to listen to a little bit more Sheen at your convenience, may I invite you to visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com because we need Bishop Sheen today more than ever. And at bishopsheentoday.com, you'll find 
hundreds of his uh, videos from his television series and his lectures, uh, literally 10 years of radio archives that we've put together of his uh, programs. And of course, there is uh, an opportunity for you to purchase books. And um, again, uh, Fulton Sheen wrote 66 books, so there's lots to choose from. And we provide you with all the links that we can to um, uh, let you do that. And of course, I mentioned earlier the 25% discount that is offered by uh, our good friends at Sophia Institute Press. And so uh, visit their website at sophiainstitute.com and use the promo code SHEEN25 at checkout where you'll then receive a 25% discount when you purchase two or more books. So again, our thanks to sophiainstitute.com uh, for their generous uh, support of Radio Maria. And again, that website of mine is bishopsheentoday.com. And you can drop me a line and uh, any suggestions you may have or prayer requests, we're happy to assist you. All right, uh, my good friends, I pray that the good Lord will continue to bless you and keep you that the good Lord will continue to let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the good Lord continue to look upon you kindly and bring you peace. We'll see you again next week. God love you.